0: Welcome to the 34th episode of the New Ventures podcast. I'm your host, Sanjoy Saniel, founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate finance consulting firm, and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. I do this podcast to help amplify the voice of climate innovators from across the world. In this particular podcast, we will discuss how to reduce the carbon it takes to ship your favorite T-shirt from where it is produced to the warehouse in your own country. To discuss this, we have not one, but two guests, joining us from Singapore. Dr. Sanjay is an expert in shipping and poetry. I guess the poetry comes from the romance of the seas. And Ken, of course, an old friend of mine, has dedicated his whole life to communicating stories about sustainability. Welcome Ken and Sanjay.
1: Thank
2: you, Sanjay. Thank you, Sanjay.
0: Sanjay, we'll start with you. If you can briefly introduce yourself.
2: I'm currently the uh, chief. Technical officer at the Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization. We really focus on uh, trying to help the maritime sector eliminate GHG emissions. And we have four ways we do that. One is really deploying solutions, financing projects, creating a collaborative platform, and also help shape standards that will help move the needle around decarbonization for the maritime sector.
0: Thank you. And uh, Ken, you are, of course, a returning guest. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yes. So sustainability is, as you said, my main preoccupation in life. But I'm also drawing largely these days on my experience in journalism. I started out as a journalist 60 years ago. So and while I've been in newspapers, radio, television, these days I'm mostly uh, helping companies produce content And effectively communicate what they're doing in the sustainability space so and this is where i recently um came got involved with with sanjay again because i'm helping dnv the maritime sector of dnv communicate what it's doing in the whole decarbonization space
0: thank you so much Sanjay, I will get back to you. I know you introduced yourself by talking about the work that you are doing in the Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization, but you have a really long history in the shipping industry as well, right?
2: Yeah, I guess if you... Look back at my own career, you know, even in ExxonMobil, one of my first roles was looking after the maritime lubricants and uh, maritime engines. And then, you know, when I was in DNV, I was also doing maritime advisory. I would really say my recent roles as executive director at the Singapore Maritime Institute really got me thrown into the deep end with regards to the whole maritime world and all its transition efforts uh, and now with the global center of maritime decarbonization.
0: Well, I always ask this question from our oil and gas executive and you come from ExxonMobil. When was the moment that you decided to, in your career, you wanted to focus on decarbonization?
2: Well, like, I think even in Exxon, we, there was a lot of decarbonization of sorts, right? Because Energy efficiency has always been a very important area in any operations, even before the concepts of sustainability, only because the more energy you save, the more cost you save and therefore greater your margin. So that, that whole concept of decarbonizing, we never use those words in those terms, but in terms of reducing energy use was always there even before it became a big buzzword today. I guess getting into moving from hydrocarbons to electrons through my career and now applying it specifically within the maritime sector and with the greater focus on climate change that wasn't there in the 90s. The, the term decarbonization has now a greater meaning than just energy efficiency.
0: Right. That's an important point. Ken, I'll come back to you. Shipping industry is probably the most globalized of all industries. Can you help us understand you know, where Singapore ranks in this problem of maritime decarbonisation?
1: Sure, because Singapore is not only the, the biggest uh, maritime bunkering centre in the world, but it's also, in a number of surveys, comes up as the most important maritime centre globally. And that's through both based on shipping import and, and output, etc. It, it is a, a major centre. And therefore, I think in the whole decarbonisation debate and and action agenda, uh, Singapore can play an increasingly important role. And and this is starting to happen. And that's why DNV as a global business has a strong focus on on Singapore and the region. And Singapore can provide leadership, not only in ASEAN, in Asia, but globally. I'm here and I'm pleased that I'm able to play a part in, in spreading this message that Singapore has an important role to play. Yeah, that's
0: an important point. The other centres of shipping would be London, would be Rotterdam in the UK and the Netherlands respectively.
2: I would also include the Chinese ports in Shanghai Port where there's significant amount of capacity and trade going through there. But I think the cities that you mentioned are correct. And if you think we go and look at the DNV Menon report that was released early this year, you will see those ports all being mentioned. I think when you stack them up across different pillars of criteria of trying to rank these ports, Singapore did come up on top. The only area where I think Singapore was actually lacking was around financing, actually. And the rest, Singapore did quite well. But those ports that you mentioned are also up there in terms of its positioning.
0: Great. Before we move further and talk about financing and other solutions, uh, can I would like you to just give us an orientation of, of the problem? How much is the emissions for maritime sector, and it's not just the ma- emissions, right? It's also the pollution issues.
1: Yeah, if I can just jump in there, and, and certainly, uh, maritime sector is responsible for close to three percent of global emissions of greenhouse gases. Aviation is consistently around the two percent, so it's small in terms of total emissions. But as shipping, the maritime sector moves about more than 90% of all goods around the world, it plays an extremely important role. So therefore, it must do something about reducing its emissions and look at how things can be operationally and and energized in a more efficient way. So Sanjay, maybe you can add to that. Yeah, I I think if you think about emissions
2: in absolute terms, right? The agriculture sector is accounting for more than 20%. So it's 10 times more than maritime or aviation. The difference is really around governance. Whilst most of the sectors can be governed by within the national mandates or the governments within the nations, the international shipping is slightly different. It doesn't really fall under any one government and therefore you need a body like the IMO that needs to kind of get its act together if it really wants to shift the needle. It is now actually taking advantage of industrial 4.0 and other decarbonisation efforts that's happening within the national boundaries of various nations, right, to see how in itself can also contribute to the solution and not be part of the problem. So I think this is where shipping is really trying to address decarbonisation. Both from a compliance perspective, but I think there's also a corporate vision among the shipping companies to actually be part of the solution.
0: Well, I think the emissions issue is well taken, but there is also the local pollution issue, right? Well, air and water uh, near the coastlines, which particularly exaggerate what scientists would call climate stresses. So acidification of the oceans is being exaggerated by pollution near the ports. Is that an issue at all? Or... It's not an important
2: issue. Well, I think what IMO 2020 did was it really forced the industry to go from, from 3.5% sulfur to 0.5% sulfur. Sulfur content obviously is the main reason for a lot of this acidification that's going on right? through sulfuric acid. So IMO 2020 really started cutting out the use of high sulphur fuel oil, right? So that was one big major step that has happened. And you, you can really see in terms of the bunker sales, which would have been, what, 70 80% on high sulphur before IMO 2020. And then after that, it's swapped over to very low sulphur fuel oil. For the remaining ships that are still burning high sulphur fuel oil, they're all expected to put on scrubbers which means they have to knock out the sulfur to meet all the sulfur limits. If you go into the the environment control areas called ECAS in Europe, US, uh, we, I don't think we have any in Asia at the moment. You will see a lower sulfur emit So there's been a lot more control on sulfur and nitrogen, NOx, what you call nitrogen oxides, to make sure that pollution element is actually being addressed at a very strict level not forgetting that a lot of road transport also contributes to a lot of acidification through the burning of gasoline and diesel and the limits on sulfur and that has also been tightening so you see a general tightening on fuel on sulfur limits to limit the the impact of those kind of air pollutions.
1: Just jump in there to add I mean I suppose if you also look at the vessels involved in fishing, for example, and then you have the added complication of not only pollution, but also uh, damage to fishing stocks. Um, we're not seeing many examples in Asia of sustainable fishing. Now, I suppose this is a related issue. And certainly there is uh, the issue of plastic pollution in the oceans, which we could possibly say that the shipping has contributed something towards that. There are still a lot of irresponsible operators of some vessels who do discard far too much rubbish uh, in in the ocean. So uh, that's another issue, but it's related. And certainly, I don't know whether we can say the maritime industry globally accepts or adopts some of that additional pollution that comes from the operation of vessels at sea.
2: Just a couple of points. So we've got to distinguish what is under IMO control and what is generic maritime. Because if you're looking at anything that's floating on water, Pleasure crafts, stuff like that also comes into play. And those are not regulated by the IMO. They're regulated by national rules or guidelines, right? No doubt that shipping is responsible in part for a lot of the trash that goes overboard. What I understand from recent discussions, there's a lot of effort at the, by shipping companies to contain that. If you look at the source of plastic in the sea, They come from three nations, Indonesia, Philippines, and China, I believe. And a lot of it is actually coming out from land use, and the pollution of rivers that flow out into sea so i don't think anyone uh, can say that no one is responsible for the pollution at sea but i think it's they all have different extent of the roles that's being played and i've seen efforts on the shipping side to actually do more to control that at least within their control what's whatever they're responsible for but yeah i mean everyone's guilty at, at some point
0: well, I'm glad uh, that you know we had this conversation because I'll try and sum it up at least setting the context in a little bit. The shipping industry by itself, is a relatively small contributor to carbon emissions, the, but it's a growing contributor. The problem is the issue of governance. It's difficult to bring down the shipping industry, carbon emissions, under the national net zero goals, which is why you brought up the point about an international maritime organization, if you may. However, the issue about the ocean pollution, if you may, is not just the shipping industry. It is in a multiple sources. The shipping industry specifically is trying to bring down the sulfur content in its fuel, which should reduce ocean acidification, which is, of course, a very key issue in the protection of the coast. So that's the kind of way I'll sum up this conversation before we move to solutions. Any quick comments?
2: Yeah, just that remember the, the sulfur reduction has already happened in the year 2020. That's why it's called IMO 2020. So that is already in place. So vessels are already need to comply to that. Brilliant. In terms of solutions, let's first talk about, you know, just stepping right from the sulfur topic
0: into the fuels, right? Fuels is an important part of the solution of the reducing carbon emissions. So the Global Maritime Center is working in ammonia. So Sanjay, can you tell us a little bit about that work?
2: Yeah, but if I can, I just want to contextualize the different things one can do in terms of decarbonizing the maritime sector. There are three big families The first family is what you call operational measures. The second family is what you call technical measures. And the third family is called market-based mechanisms. Now, if you look at these three different families, they have different degrees of impact. And operational measures, majority of them will give you no more than 10%, except for maybe slow steaming. But slow steaming is a bit controversial because it is very easy to do. It is very dependent on the contracts of arrival times that the, sh- the ship operator is subjected to. And you look at the technical measures, majority of them is anything between 4 and 9% uh, energy efficiency. The only big ticket item is wind-assisted solutions. So, and if, you, if you're on a windy route, you can get up to 30 to 40% reduction in energy usage. If you are using uh, engine derating, you can come up to 15%. But the big, big ticket item is actually fuels. And that is really where your question is. We look at all fuels equally. We don't take sides at the moment. We are very fact-based driven. The reason why we were looking at ammonia was this. Regardless of the color of ammonia, ammonia can be toxic if it's not properly handled ammonia today is moved in cargo form and been moved quite safely there have been a couple of incidents they're moved in bulk in the past but they're not many right but when you consider ammonia as a fuel then you're looking at the bunkering supply chain now the bunkering supply chain has multiple stakeholders smaller break bulk uh, volumes Multi, very high frequency. Therefore, unless properly managed, it can pose a risk to both the seafarers and the ship operators. There are no guidelines today that help guide the operation, the bunker operations of ammonia. There is no bunker operations of ammonia anywhere in the world. So we figured ammonia being zero carbon molecule. That if ammonia was going to be the fuel of the future, is it no regret step to actually understand all the safety requirements and develop procedures around the bunkering process. And that's exactly what the study is doing. The study also provides a competency framework to train seafarers and operators to best handle ammonia as a bunkering fuel.
0: I'm glad that you gave us the perspective. Just one thing before we jump in, because many of us do not know some terms in the maritime industry. What is
2: engine derating? Engine derating means if your engine can go at 100 kilometers per hour, you'll cap it and you say you can never go above 80 kilometers per hour. So you derate the full design specification of the engine. It's a hard cap. Yeah, so which
0: is related to the topic of what you call Slow streaming, it's just, just ships running a little slower.
2: No. Slow steaming is different. So engine fixes your maximum speed you can go. In slow steaming, you can throttle down and, and reduce the speed that you go based on your contracts of when you depart and when you arrive. So you have a more play. But in do engine derating, it's a hard cap. That means you want to go faster, you can't go faster. In slow steaming, if you have to go faster, you just... Accelerate. One and is a mechanical limitation and the other one is an operational choice.
1: What's obvious, and you know, fuel is, is so important, but when we're looking at decarbonisation, maybe we also consider, and I think in many parts of the world they are looking at it, but maybe it it hasn't been applied on a large scale. And that's what we're making big use of on land, and that's solar and, and wind energy. And I know in the past, if we look back to the history of, of sea trade, it was all in sailing ships. So I know I've I've seen and written about uh, various attempts around the world to introduce rather sophisticated sailing ships or ones that rely on wind energy as well as, say, solar or maybe other, other fuels. So I did see, and I don't know if uh, Sanjay had a chance to look at it, but the, the French um, catamaran that visited a few months ago and and that was amazing how not only with its solar cells on on board but rather smart um, masts that could capture the wind and it also was producing its own uh hydrogen fuel cells from from seawater so it was sort of combining three sources of of energy while at sea um and I just and and Sanjay might well know other examples around the world where this could be commercialized. I have seen examples of this going on in in Europe, some examples of trials where quite large vessels utilizing solar and and wind
2: yeah, I uh, know Ken, I was on that vessel, and i I spoke to I can't remember his name now the the owner. The wind story is there, right? Like I said, you, depending on wind and uh, your routes, you, you can get up to 30, 40%. I can tell you where the challenges of wind is. Unlike the old days where we just had crew and you know these vessels are so much smaller. When you look at a 22,000 TEU container ship, there is no space for you to put any kind of wind device except the ones that are trying now, which is the kites. So there are a lot of the design limitations of the vessels and and their purpose, let's not forget the purpose of the vessel and the design of the vessel to meet that purpose does create some kind of barriers to the amount of space you have to put wind devices. But that's being addressed and by design, right? So the flattener rotors, the fixed wind, fixed sails the, are quite good for call liquid and bulk carriers, but they can't be used in uh, container carriers, right? Which where kites are being tested. The problem with solar is this, while it works well on these small vessels, there is not enough energy per square foot generated that can even push a big tanker or a big marine vessel around. And until the solar cell's density increases by leaps and bounds, I don't think you'll ever see this happening, except for these small types of vessels that has the right size ratio, weight ratio to the amount of energy you can generate. I know they're looking at the phase two and building a a bigger vessel. They have a nice design, but it will be a big challenge to be able to carry goods and move uh, with the amount of energy available. If you're not carrying goods, yeah, it's a lot easier. But the, the question is commercialization and making it commercial viable to be able to carry enough goods per unit kilometer covered that oh, which is what the shipping industry is about. So we, we need to just wait and see. Maybe the technologies will go, grow, but not at where it is today. Right. I was
0: looking at the IPCC's report on transportation logistics and where they have a subsection on the, on the shipping industry. They do talk about this variety of options, including actually small nuclear. So I guess over the years, multiple options will be experimented is what I would suspect. But Sanjit, getting back to you, I understand you know, what you are doing, but can you give us also a little sense of where the shipping industry is in taking up some of these solutions?
2: Yeah, I mean, the big challenge is you're going to spend 100, 200, 300 million dollars on a vessel, and it's going to last you 25 years. The hull can last that long, topside, maybe 10, 15 years. So when you talk about fuels, there's a number of things to first remember that the alternative fuels that we are looking at has a much lower volumetric energy density than hydrocarbons, which means, for example, if you wanted to burn hydrogen, you would need four and a half times more fuel storage space than you would in a normal ship. If you want to burn LNG, you would need two times. Ammonia is about two and a half times. So there is some level of energy deficit Uh, with the new fuels compared to hydrocarbons. Partly because of the energy content of the fuel, and partly also because of the infrastructure required that takes up space. The cryogenics take up a lot of space on the vessel. So for a commercial vessel, space is a premium because you want to use as much space to move goods around. So that's the first big challenge. For the shipping industry so if you're going to build a ship you need to be really sure that you can meet your commercial uh, requirements the second problem is that if you don't change the storage size it means that you need to bunker more to travel that same distance now that would depend on whether the ports as you're on route actually has the facilities to actually facilitate bunkering has access to the molecule that the ship can buy. So that's the other problem, right? The ships themselves can say, I want to burn green ammonia, but where is it? No one can find it. The third barrier is that the engines need to be upgraded or redesigned to burn these new fuels. Ammonia-burning engines uh, by Watsila, by MAN, by GD will only be ready in 2024, 2025 or maybe even 26 at the yards. And then they have, so the ship owner, even if they want to change, they can't, there's very little they can do. So they are very dependent on when these other peripheral things need to come together and become ready. There are many other constraints, but I think these are the big ones that I'm trying to describe to you.
0: Got it. One topic which I wanted to just ask you, because it is Singapore and because it is important in the topic of climate innovation, is that do you see this transition of these new technologies coming in the preserve only of large companies, the ones you mentioned, or do you see a role of innovative startups? Do you see any startups in this space in the first place in relation to the overall uh, reduction of, of efficiency of carbon emissions in the
2: shipping industry? Yeah, there is. A lot of a lot of the startups have focused on digitalization because, of course, that's the most sexy thing to do. But the problem with digitalization and optimization There's, yeah, you can get maybe for 10, 15% max, and that which on a very poorly operated vessel. And in a very highly efficiently operated vessel, yeah, you might be squeezing out another 5 to 10%, right? But you see, even if you get 20% energy efficiency in itself, it doesn't really shift the global needle on decarbonization. The thing about these technological solutions, and a lot of startups are focusing on that because you really need to bolt on multiple small solutions to even get up to 50% reduction. The real big ticket item is new fuels. I don't think, unless it's, it's a brilliant chemist, a startup will have the capacity to do that kind of engineering, chemical engineering work to come up with the next generation molecule in the near future. But there are a lot of startups in the space. Singapore has a lot of startups in the space, but really looking at digital solution that optimizes both operations and fuel usage.
1: Jump in there because certainly, uh, you know, the conversation in the last few months that that I've set in on a lot at at seminars and conferences like the Singapore Maritime Week, et cetera, but certainly energy efficiency does keep cropping up and Sanjay has alluded to that. And hopefully some companies and some operators will be able to achieve some savings meantime. So if we're looking at how we can improve the operation of of existing vessels, that certainly is possible. And again, at the same time, looking at uh, alternative fuels and looking at at ways we can improve the performance, uh, is it something that's there? And it's it's not dissimilar to perhaps what's happened in the aviation industry, where They have made remarkable moves in terms of the materials that aircraft have made from that produce greater efficiencies, the aircraft engines that produce greater efficiencies. So I think there are some parallels or some learnings that we can get from other sectors. And I I know there are many in the shipping industry that that are looking at these alternatives at the same time. It's not one or the other. It's not, let's focus on energy efficiency and forget about renewable energy but doing that at the same time, because still IEA, International Energy Agency, still says every industry could bring about some significant savings in, in fuel and energy use by addressing this.
0: Ken, yeah. one question for you. I know you've written about a company which uses full waste for uh, shipping. Is my memory still correct?
1: Yeah, this is the, the used cooking oil. So there's one company in Singapore, Alpha Biofuels, and Sanjay knows the the Alan Lim and the people involved with that. Okay, it's small scale, but it's one that is adopted as a, a genuine, globally approved fuel, a biofuel uh, from from used cooking oil, and and it has been used now for the first time in Singapore as a as a feedstock, as a bunkering fuel, blended or used obviously with with other fuels that it's compatible with. So, and this is something that aviation is obviously exploring as well in a big way. And in fact, uh, I should mention, because dropped dropped aviation in this discussion a couple of times, Singapore is uh, in the process of setting up a, a hydrogen hub for uh, fuels, aviation fuels, and also looking at, at other biofuels that can be used uh, for for aircraft. And Sanjay would be able to tell me, are there any improvements in the operation of, of vessels uh, that could be achieved by using different materials for the construction of vessels like carbon fiber for example is is this something that anyone is doing anything about as they have in aviation
2: yeah there's a number of points in there maybe i'll answer the material side a lot of the lighter material that is being used is really in the harbour craft area aluminium we have a few aluminium yards in singapore like penguin and it's because it is lighter material but when you look at ocean going vessels a lot of this material can't take nature's wrath on the at the high seas. So steel is still the only thing that can be made at a cost effectively and has that kind of strength. But material science will always try to find something better and we will just live in hope, but not at this juncture, because of the energy that the ocean hits the vessels. You can even steel today can actually crack split a split, ship into half, right? So I won't hold my breath anytime soon, but maybe in my child's lifetime, something might come up for ocean-going vessels. But I wanted to also talk about the biofuels. Now, I think I'm a big advocate for biofuels. There's a couple of challenges around it. Biofuels started with a very bad name because they were palm oil-based, what we call the Generation one. The used cooking oils are what you call generation two. And, and and it's really the ability to collect used cooking oil from a very well distributed use base is a big cost factor. So how, how that is managed, you know, Alan and people like Goodfuels, who are also doing the same used cooking oil, both in Rotterdam and now in Singapore, making it available for ocean-going shipping. So you already have those kind of Generation 2 biofuels. You may have missed the press release, Sanjoy, that we, we put out last week on the 27th of uh, July. We are running a huge project looking at supply chain uh, integrity or, and using biofuels as its first candidate as a drop in green fuel uh, so that we can promote better use of biofuels and future green fuels.
0: This is excellent, and I'll try and sum up this very useful discussion. What I heard you say is that there are multiple ways to reduce um, carbon emissions, operational efficiencies, energy efficiency. But the big thing is really to change the fuel source, right? And in fuel source, you know, there are multiple options. There's wind, obviously. Solar is is difficult. But fuels like ammonia and perhaps uh, the new generation biofuels have a future. But in both cases, it's an issue of the supply chain, the storage facilities in the ports, the way engines are designed. Everything has to really change For the maritime industry to be able to implement this at scale. Now, some of this is already happening, and in some ways, all this has to be glued together. You know, that's kind of my summary of what you mentioned. Is that a reasonable summary before we move on to uh, the last phase of our podcast?
1: If I can just jump in, certainly that that does. I think that summarizes it very well. Uh, There's another Singapore company that's interestingly got involved in the biofuel side of things, and that's um, A company called Double Helix Tracking Technologies, who've had a history of being involved in timber, both in terms of verification, sustainable sourcing, and supply chain management, and helping companies manage the risks associated with trade in commodities and in timber, paper, and related things. But I've just more recently got involved in, and they're now accredited to the, the International Sustainability and Carbon Certification program, which is started in Europe, and that meets uh, European regulations too. And the first job that Double Helix did in, in the UK related to a company called Exora Energy, and they're taking um, the feedstock from the farm, you know, mostly either grains that are either not usable or uh, are not suitable for, for food purposes, but they're also taking waste from the farm, chicken manure, the other manures. But they're not only getting a fuel, and they're actually now advanced to the extent that Exora Energy are feeding gas gas into the, the national grid in the UK, but they're also providing, if you like, a byproduct, which is a, a suitable fertilizer uh, manure for the farm. So uh, they're hitting, killing two birds with one stone. But very interesting, what Double Helix have found now is that there's demand for their, their services in Singapore and and Southeast Asia to help companies on that sourcing and supply chain to verify, to make sure it's not palm oil, or it is used cooking oil or something else that is suitable and is not taking what would normally be accepted as a food product. So this is very important. But this new regulation and this new certification process is, is one that certainly can be applied to the maritime sector as well in terms of biofuels.
0: Really happy that you brought up Double Helix because Kevin Hill, who is one of the shareholders of our Double Helix, was actually on our podcast last year. Just to sort of sum this up, one question that I had is that given the fact that the emission reduction of the shipping industry is small, but it's also hard to abet, has the shipping industry been active in using carbon credits?
2: I would say as an industry, no. They haven't been that active. Some major shipping companies have started to look at it. But carbon credits has its own problems, right? The shipping industry, at least the number of CEOs that I've come across, their sense is they want to do real reduction and not by vicarious reduction, you know I mean by this credit system. The application of carbon credits is, you, you've got to look at the sourcing and, you know, whether it's real and you know, other issues around it. But what they are now trying to see is whether the shipping industry itself can generate carbon credits. And that in itself also has a lot of problems, especially around additionality and you know sustainability you no know? but it is being looked at but i would say in general no
1: i just add to that i mean certainly I've, I've had a bit to do with carbon or mostly writing about it over the years but certainly singapore is doing a lot as a country and because it's, a, it's an important financial center is seriously looking at playing a, a role as a carbon exchange as a, as a bank as a a facilitator for carbon credits and carbon offsets. So there's something that certainly Singapore is playing. And but I, I think Sanjay's right, it, it's more difficult to apply to a process. But if the aviation industry is certainly doing it in terms of people can pay for their something additional to their airfare, it's not so easy, I don't think, if you're talking about as as freighting freighting goods. So that's where I think shipping would be a little more difficult to apply but certainly it's being applied in the commodity sector and preserving forests and and making sure that things are managed land use is better managed so carbon credits certainly play a role but i i see it more difficult for the the shipping maritime industry to apply
2: if i can just add to Kent's comments the the two companies i'm aware of kuhn and nagel has a service provision where if their customers wants to ship goods and be seen as carbon neutral, Kunenago provides the services to purchase those carbon credits. It's not at the shipping industry, but it's at the logistics industry, right? Uh, good fuels, because they have ISCC certification, have some level of carbon credits, and they use it, to sell those credits to shipping companies that may want to buy it, and they have a service uh, wing that actually provides this. But I don't think it's widespread at, at this moment because the philosophy of carbon credits is not fully accepted by all parties at this juncture.
0: Right, Sanjay. One thing that you said that would pick up a little bit on is this topic around building the platform and building the financing mechanism. I don't think we have talked about that at all? And obviously that's a very important topic.
2: Yeah, sure. So the, the platform is it's not like an IT platform, right? The platform is the ability to bring multiple parties together and solve what we call system of system problems. So like in our, our first study, we had 22 study partners that came together and said on a pro bono basis, they want to help shape the standards on ammonia bunkering. We have since then had another additional 90 over entities across the world that have come on board to provide inputs to this study and this, as it comes to the later stages at the end. This means that when the study goes out to the governments uh, and the regulators of Singapore, it's going to represent not just GCMD's voice or the 22 voices, but it's going to be uh, representing more than 100 over-industry participants. That means the the recommendation has that level of buy-in. In In our most recent project that we announced last week, we have 18 organizations that have come on board to help us develop an assurance framework to for quality, quantity, and GHG abatement. And this includes uh, some of the big shipping companies of the world, you know, laboratories and things like that. So what we try to do is we are trying to look for projects that can move everyone forward and shift the needle when it's fully adopted. And that's the platform I was referring to as opposed to an IT type of platform. On the financing side, a lot of the financing is a challenge when it comes to a lot of this energy efficiency or new technologies or first-of-its-kind technologies and things like that. So GCMD has been blessed by stakeholders who have committed $150 million to us over the next five years to actually spend on projects that will help move the maritime decarbonization efforts. So we finance these or co-fund these projects so that we can actually move forward. We are looking for where there are more financing gaps and see how we can best help address them together with other financing partners. So that's being evaluated. But for the moment, that's where we finance projects. I think this point is absolutely key. Because it's my day job as well,
0: to be able to finance innovations. So this one hundred and fifty million has come from which parties, if that's public information?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's all very public. I mean, it was announced last year. The MPA gave sixty million, and then we had ten million each for bW, bHP. EPS, ONE, DNV Foundation, and Samcop Marine. Early this year, BP Shipping and Hapag Lloyd put in another $10 million each. We had uh, Chevron and BCG put in $5 million each towards uh, GCMD to help get stuff done. So, yeah, so these are all our current stakeholders that uh, have contributed to GCMD's setting up. We're just one year old on the 1st of August, actually.
0: Well, congratulations. I'll summarize this message for a wider audience. This is the example of public-private partnerships coming together mm-hmm. to finance innovation because an organization like yours, it can bring together multiple parties to identify projects and then co-fund them with industry partners and then bring about that entire industry knowledge to be able to make systematic change. That is to me the, the key takeaway.
2: Yeah. And the fact the, the the other thing which I didn't mention that GCMD is actually a non-profit organization. Our mandate is not to hoard information, but to share information. So whatever we fund, we try to put it out there for the good of the maritime industry. And that's the commitment of all the partners who have put in money. So they're not expecting any return on investment for them. It's really a benevolent group of people who said, I'm putting this money in to benefit the entire shipping industry.
1: And and one thing that uh, not only GCMD, but uh, as Sanjay represents as well, is, is this attitude of collaboration, which consistently over the last few months has been cropping up just about every time there's a conference or a seminar or a webinar, and how important it is. And, and particularly, I think, with the maritime industry is so diverse, from everyone from from shippers to shipbuilders to designers to fuel producers. So the collaboration between all parties, public and private, is so essential. And the one point that was made at um, the Singapore Energy Transition Conference held in June, that DNV played uh, a major role there. And the global, the group president was there, Remy Eric, and, and he made the point uh, that the, the important role that Singapore can continue to play, and the financing one is is certainly there. But Singapore can be seen as a hub for not only scaling up fuels or doing what's being done through the GCMD, but also looking at innovation, looking at piloting and testing the programs that can be applicable outside of Singapore. So we're not just doing it all for ourselves. We're doing it as GCMD is doing to share and foster the global industry. So and this is, I think, just to make that point that Singapore is playing quite a significant role globally globally in both addressing, attending to decarbonization, but also sharing it and, and collaborating and making sure that uh, everyone else benefits from it.
0: Right. And that is actually the pitch of a, of a perfect story that can, you can write. To conclude this podcast, Sanjay, and Ken, i ask you in a minute each, if people want to get, get in touch with you about this work that you're doing or anything else, how should they do
1: so? i'm best on email but i am very active on linkedin so people can find me on linkedin i post things just about every day i'll either post or share share things so i have a number of articles already some of them on decarbonization and and the maritime sector on my pages and i did start a few months ago what i call ocean outlook so it's really a, a magazine feature that i put through my abc carbon express so Probably easier to find me as Ken Hickson on LinkedIn. Um, I'm accessible and I usually respond. For me, it's easy.
2: Just go to our website, www.gcformd.org. There's contact us there and do write to us, and we monitor all emails coming through there.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Sanjay. And uh, Ken, as usual, wonderful to host you again. I think it is so important to bring the Singapore story to the world. Sanjay, I must thank you especially because we haven't ever done anything on the maritime industry. I think a lot of people are very interested to know about this.
2: You're welcome, Sanjay. And thank you for the opportunity just to share our thoughts from GCMD. And we look forward to a positive impact on the maritime industry
1: wonderful and uh, i'm always happy to, to work with you sanjoy and speak and take part in these things you're doing a great job in, in communicating sustainability and and climate change which is something that i've been on about for a long time but more than happy to share and work with you
0: uh you know ken i i admire you very very much if you like this podcast do visit us on regainparadise.org regainparadise.com Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn and you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and YouTube.